Hi, my name is Morgan Auger, and you're listening to Catholic versus Atheist. So uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, if you would please, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe what you believe. Who am I? Who are you, Morgan? I'm a, uh, uh, you know, I'm uh, an adult. I live in Vancouver. I'm, uh, I have uh, two children in public schools at uh, the cusp of uh, elementary and secondary school. I work in technology. I was born in France and I moved to the United States when I was 10 years old, but I've moved around a lot before and after that. I now live in Vancouver where I moved here in 1983 when I was 15 and this is my home now. Um, I'm an activist. I'm transgender, which is, I think, a, a big thing for others. Me, it's like a little thing. So I'm a transgender woman, uh, which makes me a mom of two. Uh, makes me also just on the receiving end of a lot of uh, inequity. And so I've uh, fallen into activism and politics. Uh, in 2018, I founded the Morgan Auger Foundation, and it was founded to narrow the gap between Canada's laws and the experience of people on the ground by using uh, education, advocacy, and uh, legal mechanisms to uh, make things better. I'm currently serving as vice president of the BC New Democratic Party, so you could say I'm also a socialist. I've been a candidate for public office twice. Uh, at school board, and uh, I ran for the legislature in 2017. And lately, I've been fairly notorious for winning an important human rights case, which confirmed that uh, religion or free expression didn't have supre supremacy over uh, the right to just participate in democracy unhindered. So essentially that there's no hierarchy of rights in Canada. And that was related to um, an anti-LGBT, basically an anti-gay activist coming after me when I was running for office in 2017. And kind of trying to make a point that he should be able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And uh, luckily for me, the tribunal supported me and confirmed that no, in fact, you don't get to say or do whatever you want. Before we get into all that stuff, uh, I'd like to ask you a couple questions about your uh, childhood. How were you raised? Were you raised uh, in the Catholic faith in France or what was your upbringing like? So I'm, I come from a Catholic tradition. Uh, my mother's family is uh, very active in the Catholic church in, in France. My father's family, less so today, but um, my, grand, my paternal grandfather was very active in his church uh, at the local level. My mother's family is uh, old French aristocracy and uh, has uh, had a long relationship with the Catholic Church. Uh, we've had many monks and nuns and church officials in our family. We still have... Uh, relatives that have been nuns that are like my mother's age. That said, I grew up, you know, on in a more liberal 
view. We were tend we tended to be Christian Easter Catholics, um, and uh, I it didn't take for me. You know, I think there were a number of reasons I could give for why uh, structured, organized religion didn't stick with me. But fundamentally, I would say that from what I saw in the actions of people, I didn't see what I read in catechism school, right? It was just not the same thing. What I read about was a message of love and inclusion. And from quite an early age, it didn't ring true. And you, to this day, I would say, uh, my, you know, I, I have a, a great respect for religion and for the good it does, but the chilling harm that religion does by far over, uh, overcomes the good that's done in its, in its name. And that's something I find very troubling. And as a transgender woman, you know, a publicly transgender woman, Religion is used as an excuse to try to rid the world of my kind. I remember coming back to, to France from Morocco. I was very young, but my brother was a little older. And I remember this first big strong sense of not being like them, which was when my brother was telling me the story of getting punished for telling the truth in class because he knew something, he had seen something. Some, we're talking about the most ludicrous things here. He had seen goats in trees, I, I believe the story is, because everybody who knows goats knows that goats small, climb small trees. And that was just a, like an unspeakable sin to say that goats climb trees. And so, you know, this kind of like a weird thing where this the sense that you have knowledge or you have experiences that people without experience will call a lie. That came early for me. So uh, there was my brother's stories and I had similar stories. You know, I'd seen a windrose. I don't know if you know what windroses are. They're uh, no. sand structures that, that solidify into stones again, uh, formed by the shape of wind. And they look like a rose. They're called windroses. And that's the symbol that we we see on maps. Sometimes we see a windrows on maps, and um, and uh, it's a thing. It exists. And I remember being told that I was lying. That there's no uh, no such thing. You know, rose made out of stone. No such thing. It's like, of course there is. And and that you know, I think that was really formative for me. Very very formative. That when I was, and I think this is a lesson for all parents, and it's a lesson I carry, and I try to because I do a lot of teaching and uh, sharing. And the, the idea that a parent might think that they know something, yet actually they don't. And maybe what your child tells you is actually the truth. And you should treat what children say as something other than lies. Accusing children of lying or telling them that they're not fit or there's, there's something wrong with what they're saying is a risk because in my experience, they're often telling the truth. My experience is knowing that people say things to be true that are not true, and people are punitive about things they perceive to be true that you perceive to be wrong. What about the difference, and that the difference can turn on you? I think that had something to do with my spiritual journey. And in that spiritual journey, I saw the blind faith. So I, I went to a convent school 
in France called L'Adoration, the Adoration, by a sect of nuns that were, you know, focused on education and, and so forth in, in Rennes, where I grew up in France. I was there for a few years, and I remember that um, uh, dissent and conversation were not their strength, right? And uh, and they, in my eyes, they were the they were the enforcers of religion. So it's the questioning of my religious upbringing came from my teachers, I think, who were clearly not able to see the difference between opinion and truth in my eyes as a child. So we, we were in Boston for a period of time. And in Boston, my mom was fascinated by Protestant religions and the more exotic ones. And for, for a while, she went to explore these different groups and their ways. And um, my mother has always been very interested in cross-religious ideas and in the end, she did a master's in, uh, in comparative lit between Christian writings and Muslim writings. <laughs> I think that's what it was. So very, very profoundly different ways of doing faith were exposed to me when I was young. I guess I was still kindergarten, first grade, that kind of age group. And I had very fond memories of this. I remember today these, well, ironically, now, now I know these groups are, you know, I, I'm not very bad at naming Protestant religious groups, but some of these groups are profoundly opposed to the existence of transgender people, more so than, let's say, the Catholic tradition is. And, um, and it's interesting, you know, that, that back then they were a good place in my experiences, and today they're not. Um, later on, I discovered in Chicago, I was growing up in Chicago. Now this is uh, ages 10 to 14, and I was a Boy Scout in Chicago because trans women get to do the male-specific things when, before they transition. So I was a Boy Scout, and then Scouts are tightly aligned to religion. And that's where the question would come up a lot. Religion I was, Catholic or was I Protestant? Um, back then, I just hid behind agnostic. That was my term. I learned that word in around, I guess, age 12. And that was my go-to place. And I'm, I'm agnostic. I don't know. I don't really feel like picking. And um, that was also defense, because being an atheist in Chicago, saying, you know what, I don't believe in, in a God, and that's all there is to it. I don't believe in a sentient God. I don't believe that um, nature is designed like by a sentient God, which doesn't mean there isn't um, fundamental truths. It doesn't mean that there isn't justice and all those things. I think, you know, the overlap between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is so profound. It's, it's also an overlap with everything I believe, except for the things that tell us about if you're not one of us, you're a bad person. So anyways, I, I, I came out as finally an atheist later. I would say when I was in Canada, I moved here when I was 15, in 83. And here, I was. there was room for me to say, no, I'm an atheist. I do not believe in your God thing. 
that wasn't really part of my life, you know, it wasn't important to me. My father's a, a professor of medicine, and there was a, a lot of pressure to follow in his tracks. And my grandfather was a, you know, had been a, a doctor in France. My father's world is medical academics. My mother's world is academia. And so there was a very strong push to be academic and to be a doctor. And one day I remember, this is a university, I finally had to tell them that, you know what, I'm not going to do this. And I mean, the, the pressure to go enter medical school included me being summoned by the Dean of Admissions of UBC to explain myself. Why aren't you applying? You know, and then the answer came in in this, in the, 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 the statement, which was, why are you not applying? You're the doc, you know, the child of a doctor, and you're the grandchild of a doctor. We make it easier for you. And it's like, yeah, that's why. Right there. That's why I'm not applying. I don't want the special deal. I've always had a huge aversion to nepotism in my life. I've always been horrified by it. And the French tradition has a lot of nepotistic tendencies in it, you know? I'll send my son or my daughter to do this thing. I'll ask my buddy to get my kid a job that no one else can get without being the child of a friend. These kinds of things, and I find this really awful. Yeah, it's a very Catholic uh, idea, the nepotism. That's where the very notion stems from uh, popes giving positions to the nephews, right? I know, that's right. And it's so wrong in so many ways. Yet I understand why it exists. But in meritorious things that are deeply sought after, you know, I, I remember I, I did a, you know, thanks to nepotism, I got a job in IT in France in a computer factory. And I remember I was brought in by my dad's buddy, the number two of the, you know, major computer manufacturer at the time. And so I was working side by side with the daughter of the number one person in the company. Right? And working with us was the child of the number three person in the company. And we were in the control center automation for this plant. And the kids of number four, five, six, seven, eight were doing more menial work. And the kids of the others were doing truly menial work. And this was like in this kind of summer program kind of thing. And they had stuck the kids in a proxy of the hierarchy of their parents. And nobody there was working there that wasn't related to somebody who could get their kid in. Oh, that offended me so profoundly. I was 22, I think, at the time. So let's see. I never came out as gay. I'm not a gay man. I was never a gay man. I came out as not homophobic, I think, as an adult and not transphobic. It took me a while to, you know, when you're, when you're afraid of seeing yourself in others, you sometimes you act out, you know, we have this phenomenon in, in social conservative circles, the most homophobic and transphobic of them turn out to be gay or trans later, right? That strange thing where to affirm oneself in the people we're afraid of, there's nothing like being the most fervent representative of the thing that we're afraid of them for, which of course we know never works. 
So there was a little bit of that in my young adulthood. I was studying engineering when I recognized that in myself. I was in engineering school. To my shame to this day, I participated in a basically what you would call a straight pride event. And um, it took, you know, took me some time to realize what I had done when I done that. But uh, it's funny what people will do to affirm they're not the thing they're afraid of. Were you afraid to go to Wreck Beach? No. Wreck Beach is not something I associate with homosexuality. Wreck Beach is a nude beach um, on the edge of the city at UBC. So UBC is a university separated from the city by the University Endowment Lands which or was at the time, now it's been renamed or partly renamed Pacific Spirit Park. So it's, a, it's fascinating. We have the city and then we have a, a raw forest buffer and then we have a university with I think 60 or 70,000 people now. So it's a really a town of its own. And it's on a peninsula at the edge of the city and it's surrounded by ocean, of course, but it's on a bluff, a sand bluff. At the bottom of the sand bluff in a section is a beach called Wreck Beach which is traditionally be a nude, been a nude beach. As a funny aside, my downstairs neighbor is Carolyn Brooks, and she wrote a book on Wreck Beach. Now, Carolyn is a very devout Christian, and she wrote a fascinating book about Wreck Beach. I think it's called Wreck Beach. And um, no, you know what? I remember uh, I used to sell alcoholic fruit kebabs on Red Beach. I did that a few times. You could make, it was, it was such a walk to get down there. So you had to be committed. But to this day, I remember the pizza guy, he would come on a bicycle with a stack of maybe like 10 large pizzas. He would walk all the way down. This is, a, I mean, maybe a, what, 30 story walk yeah. right down. And then he had a trumpet and he would get to the bottom of the steps and he would blow a tune on a trumpet and then he would yell pizza and he would sell the pizza at something like three or five dollars a slice. And then he would sell out every time because the walk up was so hard. Nobody would leave Wreck Beach to go get food. Anyways, there was nowhere to get food from. So he was a, he had a guaranteed market. I always thought that was brilliant. The guy probably lives in a Shaughnessy mansion now. So yeah, no, fear of Wreck Beach. You know, in my life, I've been approached by creepy old guys a few times. You know, one that's sexual things or trying to turn a situation sexual. It's like an inevitable thing in in life, it seems. Either that or the one that can tell you're vulnerable to them. And, um, you know, I knew there were creepy old guys down there. But Rick Beach is not like a gay men's play paradise. I mean, the gay men used to cruise more in in other places. They didn't cruise in Rick Beach, to my knowledge. That was where the hippies were, the naked hippies. I was a little sensitive about being naked on Rick Beach. I, I, in in all honesty, you know, already then I was like really experiencing dissatisfaction with my body, and that was reason to feel uncomfortable there. But that's that's it. And then I had to come out as a, I had to come out as trans in a way to my partner once upon a time because I was I used to be married, 
and I used to be in a relationship. Before we got married, I kind of expressed to this woman my thoughts and my feelings. And that was a coming out that went very badly. So, Have you got a relationship with that woman today? Uh, no, not a good relationship, unfortunately. But you have a good relationship with your two uh, kids? I do. So, to my knowledge, I'm the first transgender woman who successfully fought for joint custody and won. It wasn't in a tribunal. At the time, it was still not advised to go to court. Things are better now, but then there was a, a real concern that the courts were unpredictable when it came to their outcomes. And it's a chilling thing to not be sure that the court will apply the law as you interpret it should be applied. That's a very difficult situation to be in. It's like, yeah, that's the law, but you're trans. You know, Catholic people are a minority in Canada, right? Yeah. Imagine, yeah, that's property law, but you're Catholic. And we don't want another one of you here. It's too many already. So, you know, I'm going to interpret that law differently. Because I can, because it's in my power to have blur. That's a pretty harsh reality to face, right? Anybody in a minority group worries about things like that. It's chilling when you realize that you have to make a decision because of the fear that your ability to live your life is going to be affected by who you are. You make pragmatic decisions. So my pragmatic decision was not to go to court and to get a divorce order, but to mediate and negotiate a child care agreement. And that was the first trans woman ever succeeding in Canada, to my knowledge. So do you know other trans people? Well... I am a trans human rights activist and organizer. And so, yeah, I know an awful lot of transgender people. And I'm the go-to person for help kind of in Canada, but also internationally for certain situations. I, so, yeah, no, I know, but I personally know many trans people. I had a transsexual roommate once. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because generally speaking, you know, I lived and operated in fairly conservative circles, you know, not, not profoundly socially conservative circles, but engineers working in banking in Switzerland, where I worked for a decade as an adult, or military contracting in the US, or uh, military contracting in Canada. I, my, my engineering specialty is submarine robotics. And that meant that I spent a lot of time in circles where you just kind of didn't come across sexuality or gender identity or transsexualism because everybody who put up their hand disappeared from the community that you were part of because of the nature of society at the time and in the context. So the people who I knew, I knew from university and they weren't necessarily out or they weren't necessarily openly trans. Uh, the transsexual woman I knew was, you know, people knew she was transsexual who knew her. I think it's important to remember context as well, right? One didn't get to be openly trans in the 80s and our 90s. 
in this country or anywhere. And then I went into working in conservative organizations that would throw you out in a second if they thought you were gay or trans. So I lived my entire career in an environment where I couldn't possibly know gay or trans people from work because they would never admit it because I would put their careers at risk. I used to have a security clearance for my work and I remember being asked about my sexuality and my gender identity and they would ask about perversions and things like this and I and I remember like looking at these questions and thinking if I tell them the truth I will never work in this industry again and if I lie and I get caught I will never work in this industry again. I'm exactly the kind of person they're afraid of. Someone with something to lose. My wife and I uh, watch a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, and there was some controversy where RuPaul was, I guess, insensitive to the trans uh, somehow. Uh, he had to issue some sort of apology, I think. And uh, there have been a few drag queens who have come out as trans. Uh, can you just sort of talk about the confusion that arises, even among those who identify as LBGTQ or whatever? So I'm not a fan of drag. Just, I don't watch RuPaul's Drag Races. I never have. I've never watched a whole episode, not once. That said, drag is an art form that is basically minstreling, but for a different reason than minstreling is, let's say, like when people do blackface. The purpose of blackface is to ridicule black people, usually, or to worse, try to be and represent a black person, and that's awful. The, 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 the action of drag is to represent the phenomenon of gender and gender stereotype and gender role. And until recently, the process of doing that leveraged misogyny to do it in an awful way. And sometimes the drag was just awfully misogynistic and degrading and I never understood why that's a source of entertainment. Degrading others on things they can do nothing about sh shouldn't be a source of humor, you know? Like that's, that's the kind of humor we used to have in the 70s and before, you know, making fun of the disabled or making fun of people not from here who haven't adapted. And, and I don't know, I find it, I find my stomach churning, but often it's because I am made fun of. And I've always been not like them on various reasons, whether it's because I was an immigrant or because I was an immigrant that had come back or because I was trans or because I was an atheist. I don't think those things are that funny. Even though sometimes we do bad things and we laugh at things we shouldn't laugh at. Turning that into an industry is, is awful. That said, drag is also now about deconstructing, you know, taking, peeling away what the essence of gender is. There's a lot of drag performance that crosses and mixes things up, makes people question the reasons why they do things. I think that's a fascinating art form. Now, that said, RuPaul believes you can't be doing drag if you're not a man. And you know what? RuPaul is selling a product to, primarily to a specific crowd. Drag is overwhelmingly a gay man's plaything, especially the old school misogynistic drag, because there's no doubt that in the LGBT community, in the gay men's community, this 
a lot of misogyny. A lot of people complain about that. Now, it turns out that RuPaul has some performers who are basically pre-transition trans women who decide to transition during the journey of this drag thing. And at first, he tried to get rid of the trans women and he got pushback for it. So he limited himself to, you have to start out as a masculine presenting person doing drag. And there's the whole, what's the big deal? This is only fun and games. Boys will be boys, people. And then there's the other people saying, what the hell is going on here? This is awful. And I tend to be of the latter group. Friends of mine do drag performance. And it's fascinating to see drag deconstruct gender roles and identity. And I'm a transgender woman, and I'm a trans woman who was never part of the gay men's culture. And I'm a trans activist, and drag is used to harm transgender women all the time. It's what's the more right-wing people in the world who use religious tropes to attack trans people actually point at drag people, especially drag queens, who are men disguised as women or dressing up as women or doing strange things. And they say, look, look at these awful men. This is what trans women are. And that is deeply damaging for trans women because it's not true. It's not trans women, but it causes people to associate trans women with debauchery that some people do. As a politician, I know how to raise an angry crowd to build a movement. And I see what they're doing. And I see that they're using performers to justify harming my community, people like me, by bringing in fear and loathing. And that's an awful thing to do. And I regret that drag is part of that because it has nothing to do with being trans. Even though being trans is a deconstruction of sex and gender too. But at the same time, lots of trans women went through drag to learn the performance of gender. Because those of us who have transitioned, we know that gender is performed and that it's not inherent. How women talk as compared to how men talk is not born we're not born with these differences. We're taught them. Just that most of us don't know that we're taught those things. Most of my gay friends here in Montreal are straight acting. And I was always wondering why the more flamboyant homosexual seems to be feminized. And uh, when they come out of the closet, suddenly their articulation is very precise and prissy. And there's a little lilt on everything they say. And there's a snarkiness. Uh, where do they learn this? Is it from TV and movies? Is there a cultural peer pressure? What, what do you make of it? You know, the stereotypes of conversation in the gay community, reminding you that I'm not part of that community. The stereotypes of that come from a number of places. One is code. Being gay used to be dangerous. Codes evolved to be able to recognize one another. And the uh, that kind of like weird catty stuff comes a little bit from that. It's an ecosystem. Ecosystems develop a certain way. 
people who enter the ecosystem adhere to it and then they feel free there's nothing like discovering the freedom of being someone that you were previously not free to be you know and i'll give you a hint about this from the point of view of a lens that's probably more familiar to you born again religion and converted people there is nobody more irritating than a newly converted <laughs> convert right yep <laughs> there you go that's what you're seeing it's just enthusiasm it's enthusiasm and a desperation to fit in and we all do that Look at like freshly out trans women that fit in. And some of these freshly out trans women have made me like my blood boil because I'm so jealous of them. Like, how did they, how did they figure out the whole thing so fast? Like, you know, you came out as trans six months ago and you're like running laps around me on presentation. Ugh. And this is a little bit of the thing about, tra about drag. It's like, wow, you're pretending here. For you, this is a game. Whereas I do this, I do this for my survival. And for you, this is a game. And man, I wish I could do what you do. But um, you know, the thing about stereotypes is that they're cultivated, but also it's because that's all you see from the outside. Your lens, like if you were to draw the picture of the Christian minister, you draw a Catholic priest and I draw a Catholic priest and someone else, a random person who's just like read about Catholic priests through the news and has never participated in Catholic religion, draws a Catholic priest. And these three of us, these three pictures will be profoundly different because of uh, the, the harmful stereotypes that poison perception from the outside. You know, I, I do a lot of work on hate propaganda. That's like a, a center of interest of mine is dealing with hate propaganda. And hate propaganda has done the most effective hate propaganda is done by using hate sandwiches, you know, you go and you say the truth that everybody agrees with, especially a commonality. And then you state an outright lie. And then you provide some sort of a statistically anomalous factoid that supports something in the outright lie. And then you go back to the truth about all of us. And what you do is you repeat these kinds of things and these hate sandwiches, after a while, they stick. And so the statistically anomalous things of faith can be used to turn people against faith and demonize an entire faith. Especially if we use blood libel, which is the, the things that can't be unproven. It was an old inquisition trick against the Jews uh, in, uh, and it came out of Spain, which was uh, the accusation that you're stealing the blood of our children for your religious rights. And now imagine trying to prove that you are not stealing the blood of your children for religious rights. How would you do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like the witch tests, right? These are a form of this kind of thing. And hate propaganda is an awful thing, but it's so effective. And it's so triggered by individuals misbehaving. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's bullying and there's hatred and all this uh, ugliness in society toward those who are different. And um, 
the darkest sort of corner of this is isolation and eventually in the most extreme cases, suicide. Can you just talk a little bit about suicide and how to prevent it and how to recognize it, the symptoms of it? And have you had firsthand experience with suicide among family or friends or anything like that? I've lost trans friends to suicide. Um, I have lost trans friends to suicide because of their experiences in Catholic hospitals. Just to put this in context of this conversation. Being alone is an awful thing. Isolation is terrible. I mean, that's the strengths of a critical value of religion is, is community, right? And isolation, exclusion, and othering are the things that harm us most as people without actually touching us, you know, without physical contact. We can, you know, when we, when we expel someone from our community or when we remind them over and over and over and over again that they're not one of us or that we don't, respect them it's extremely painful it's inter interesting because i think there's no other context where this where this happens i am routinely intercepted by people because i'm publicly transgender people who hate transgender people know who i am and and recognize them so i track them and i am routinely intercepted by people who come to me out of the blue in person sometimes to tell me you know always it's the same it's like sir I love you, Mr. Ogre, or whatever they use, they usually like butcher my name. I love you, and that's why I'm going to call you by the name God gave you, or an equivalent if they're not religious. I am going to remind you, just because I can, that you are not respected as who you say you are. That is an awful thing. I mean, think about it. Um, like what would happen at work if people come to you over and over and over again and say, you know what, you're a fraud. You're not really actually qualified for this job every day. Okay, so I have these numbers. They're symptoms of hatred in pictures. And they're from a publication of Canadian data. And I would like, as I describe these, I would like you to think about what these facts do to a person on the receiving end of them as I do them. And then we'll talk about that because the data at the end talks about this. So 34% of trans people are subjected to verbal threats or harassment. 39% have been turned down for a job because they're transgender. 73% have been targets of mockery. 77% seriously considered suicide. 87% of trans students say they feel unsafe in places at school. 20% of transgender students have been physically or sexually assaulted because of their uh, gender identity or expression. 43% of transgender students and transgender people, I'm sorry, have attempted suicide. 50% of transgender people live under $15,000 a day, a year, I'm sorry. And for students, there's a 93% drop in suicide attempts among youth who are strongly supported by their parents in their community. So if you take away 
the isolation and if you take away the exclusion and if you take the, away the constant questioning of the validity of who you are it turns out that for youth their suicidality goes back to the background like everybody else but if we don't then those trans youth have a 43 percent suicide rate attempt and this is what I've seen in adults. We take people who are hopeful, they transition, they think they're gonna live their true life. If you imagine a 40 year old transitioning, like on day two, what their life looks like, okay? They look like a guy who's saying they're a woman and doesn't know how to behave. It's like basically a puberty, but it's a puberty as an adult in an environment that hates you or that has no place for you at the very least. And rather than everybody else rolling their eyes and saying, oh boy, this is going to be fun for the next five years as this person, you know, adapts, instead, we pick on this person as a society. And we just like scratch at their psyche and that their sense of self-worth. And then year after year of this, we break them down. And we all know what happens when you break people down they eventually collapse or snap. And the, the rate of breaking down is really high. And from what I've seen from my own observations, it's really simple. If you have a good network that keeps you safe and sound, you survive. And if you don't have a good network that does that for you, you don't. And that's a major problem in our society today. So based on what you said, I guess you have one of the strongest networks of any trans person on the planet today. Well, I do. You know, I, I have a little bit of a unique situation. I come from some privilege. My family's highly educated. It's middle class. It's progressive. It's open to ideas, evidence-based. Uh, my family uh, were, were strong and supportive, loving family. Most families are, of course, loving families. Weirdly, I, uh, I was outed in 2013 for, for giving an interview. I, I gave an interview in a, in a newspaper uh, well, on, on Rabble. I gave an interview on Rabble to a trans uh, journalist. And, and I remember the trans journalist warning me, don't, like, are you sure you want your name on here? And naively, I said, I'm not afraid of them. I'm afraid of nobody. What can they do to me? So I put my name, I, 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 my name was published with the article. And strangely, the whole context of the interview was my trying to intervene within the transgender community, which was outraged that um, a, uh, actually an ex-Catholic nun uh, who uh, turned into a, a, a lightning rod of anti-trans uh, justification was coming to Vancouver to speak at an event hosted by Vancouver Rape Relief. And this woman is responsible for the U.S. insurance companies refusing to insure any medical care related to transition for decades in the U.S., from the 80s to, the, like, to about 2015. So from the trans community's point of view, this woman has some very serious blood on her hands. And in 2013, Janice Raymond was invited to speak about um, 
sexual exploitation, like uh, the sex trade, mm-hmm. uh, by Vancouver Rape Relief at the Vancouver Public Library, the main branch. And the response of the transgender community was outrage. And they were going to, there was a strong intent to create a massive, raucous incident. And myself and several others were pulled into this phenomenon. And my contribution to this was to convince uh, essentially that era's Antifa to not engage and to leave them alone and to take the air out of the room by not having an incident and instead to do something else elsewhere. So my only, my, my real contribution was to prevent a major incident at the Vancouver Public Library from happening. And it would have most likely been a violent incident. Well, that was my fear. And that got me outed. And hate sites picked up on who I was and started to hound me. It was awful, an awful period of my life. Um, There were attempts to identify the schools my children go to in order to cause embarrassment at my children's schools, for example. There was, you know, an attempt to triangulate on where I live based on my Twitter postings, which at the time had been geocoded. And um, so it was a little bit terrifying. And I, I sought advice about what to do about this. Like, what do I do? Do I hide? I was what we call baby trance. You know, I had been out for, 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 for weeks. Well, I had started to access hormone replacement therapy in July, I think, or maybe even September. And this was in November of 2013. So I was just coming into existence and this explosion happened. And so um, the advice that I got back from elders, not necessarily trans elders, but people, the advice was, you know, there's two places you can go. You can go hide in a corner and look for oblivion, or you can step into the middle of the room and get a spotlight and hide under the spotlight and find safety under the spotlight. And I remembered about how other people had found safety under the spotlight, because if you're publicly known to be a person, it's harder to get at you and to do bad things. And trans people, especially trans women, we worry about people doing bad things to us. And that's the strategy I I followed. So I ended up under the spotlight. And being under the spotlight, what I did is I um, agreed to speak in my name, honestly, you know, and, and I spoke as a fairly rare thing. You know, I'm an engineer. I come from a tradition of clear thinking and clear speaking, I know how to make a, an argument, I'm able to explain, and I'm willing to suffer fools to a point and turn their arguments upside down. And it turns out I was fairly good at this, and I ended up in politics. But what this gives me in exchange, it's fair to say, it gives me a resilient network of resources and of friends who respect what I do, and who support me and help me. And because of my political activism, I've had access to training, both in communications and also in resilience. You know, I've had access to anti-oppression tools, 
for dealing with extremely hostile situations. And now that I'm a very afraid public figure, I have access to actual physical security. So I'm able to be protected. And there is no resilience like the resilience you get from knowing that if you ask for help, the help will come. But it was a long road to get here. Someone tried to murder me in front of my children once in 2014. Now I've been attacked more than once. I've lost friends to violence and to suicide. So activism never comes free. I, I don't know if you know, but at the end of my episodes, I ask my guests to give the closing thought, something positive, uplifting, uh, enlightening, and hopeful, just a little message of hope for the listener. So what do you think you might be able to say to anyone that's out there listening now? I would say that I'm really looking forward to how things develop over time. As we get past this change period, we're in a period of change right now, being trans is being accepted more and more. Things will settle down. I'm really looking forward to youth growing up and figuring themselves out and having the luxury of growing up in a society that doesn't care how they identify, that doesn't care about their sexuality, and therefore doesn't create all the damage that gets created from those things when they're oppressed. I'm convinced that that society will be a much healthier one than this, where we are still today. That's what I'm looking forward to. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is.